All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats. All right, make your way back to your seats. And as you're heading that way, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. To John chapter 1, and and I'll say this as an introduction while you're flipping there. Uh, uh, We're going to spend the next four weeks or so uh, in an Advent series that we're going to call The Word Made Flesh. The Word made flesh. And so what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're actually going to spend all our time in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So we've broken that up uh, into four, four different sermons, all focusing on this idea of the Word made flesh. I know for some of you, you're still recovering from Thanksgiving, so you're not quite ready to be thinking about Christmas. But whether you like it or not, it is upon you. Our tree went up yesterday. We're... we're We're getting there like many of you are, and so we wanted to go ahead and jump right into this series, this Advent series, just to help us over the next few weeks to reflect on on what it is that we celebrate, on on what Advent, what this time of year is all about. So again, series is entitled The Word Made Flesh, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 over the course of the next four weeks. We're going to be looking at the first five verses this morning. So I want to invite you, uh, hopefully you've arrived by now, to stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read John chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Hear what John writes. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Heavenly Father, as we fix our hearts and our minds and our eyes on you during this season of Advent, as we reflect On Jesus born in a manger, God, I pray that you would help us to be in awe of just how amazing your rescue plan, how amazing your rescue plan was, Lord, how your providence has been at work, your sovereignty on display from the beginning of creation. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray for spiritual and physical strength as I preach your word to your people. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the perks of being royalty, not that I know, I read this on the internet, one of the perks of being royalty is that you, you have your pick of some of the best uh, vacation spots that the world has to offer. And one of the more famous vacation destinations for, for England's royal family is actually the Balmoral Castle in Scotland. Now, the royal family actually goes there quite frequently for a chance to get away. It provides, as you could imagine, a beautiful countryside. I mean, they have a castle, so that's pretty cool, I guess. And the royal family goes there annually, sometimes multiple times in a year, to to get out to explore and to just get away. Well, a few years back, 
Now, this is a true story. On a particular trip, the Queen of England, <clears throat> she was dressed down a little bit, somewhat inconspicuous. She was, she was out for a walk with one of her security officers, walking around the, the estate. And, and the estate, you know, it, it's pretty well protected, but it also has some leeway. People can come and go on the, on, on the estate, take pictures of the castle. It's a very historic place. And so the Queen was out with one of her security security officers, and she ran into a group of American tourists. I think it was like seven or nine of them, I can't remember, but a group of American tourists. And, and the interesting thing was the tourists had no idea who she was. And so not knowing who she was, while they're staring at this beautiful castle, they asked the queen if she lived by in the area, to which the queen replied, I have a house nearby. And they followed up with another question. And they asked her if she'd ever met the queen. And so without missing a beat, the queen responded, no, but this policeman here has. And so the group of tourists, fascinated by this policeman who had met the queen, spent about 10 minutes asking the policeman questions about what the queen was like, about their encounter, as the queen stood to the side smiling. They failed to recognize who the queen was. They didn't know that they were standing in the midst of royalty. And as a result, they failed to give the queen the respect, the, the dare we say, reverence or the attention that, that would typically be given to earthly royalty. And so the tourists actually left, never knowing that they were standing next to royalty. One of the tourists was interviewed later when the security guard actually shared the story with the news and was a little embarrassed that they did not realize that they were standing next to the queen. He said if he would have known, he would have at least bowed. But in our text this morning, in a much more significant sense, John writes in the prologue of his gospel in verses 1 through 5, so that no one will ever encounter Jesus and miss who he truly is. John, John wants to here at the very beginning introduce his readers to Jesus, and as John begins his gospel, he wants to make sure that his readers understand exactly who this word is, exactly who Jesus is. And so he, as he begins, he actually goes all the way back to the beginning, or perhaps we could even say John goes back to before the beginning to introduce us to the word made flesh. And in these first five verses, John is going to reveal three important truths about Jesus, three things that we need to know about this Jesus before we ever consider him born in a little town called Bethlehem, in a manger, to a virgin named Mary. These are three things that we need to consider if we're ever going to properly answer this question of who is this word? Who is this word? And so as we begin this Advent series, we wanted to take these first five verses and just make sure we know who this Jesus is that we're talking about. Because you do know, as we'll see in just a moment, he existed long before he showed up in a manger. That he has been for all eternity. And so this leads actually to the first truth, the first reality that John wants to teach us, that the Word existed. The Word existed. Look again at verses 1 and 2. 
John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word existed. Now, now, before we can actually get into what John is saying here about the word, we have to tackle for just a moment how he said it. Specifically, why did John call Jesus the logos? That's the Greek word for, for word. Why did John use that word to describe Jesus? Now, in case you didn't realize, we, we do know that when John is saying the word, he's talking about Jesus. There are actually clues all throughout the prologue of this book. You see it there in, in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But you could look at John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. You could look at John 1, 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. But probably the clearest evidence that John is talking about Jesus when he uses that word logos, or the word, is found in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so there it is. When John is talking about the Word, he's talking about the Son of God. He's talking about the one made flesh, the one who is full of grace and truth. And so we know that John was talking about Jesus, but we often take it for granted, or at least I have, as to why it is that John chose to refer to Jesus as the Word, as the Logos. Now, to make sense of this, we have to remember I'm just going to tell you this at the front end. The start of this sermon is going to be a little thick and theology-filled, but praise God, amen? A little theology never hurt anybody. Well, that might not be true. We have to remember here at the beginning that John's writing this gospel with a purpose, and John's very kind to us. He actually tells us why he's writing this gospel, and, and John writes this in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He gives us the purpose. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So unlike the intention of other gospel writers, like you can take Matthew, for example. Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience. That's why there's a lot of Jewish imagery, a lot of Jewish tradition and history in that gospel. But, but John's actually writing to a little bit broader of an audience. So John is writing to Jews, but he's writing to Gentiles as well. That's part of the reason why he includes some stories about Samaritans and Gentiles that the other gospel writers leave out. But again, his goal being that, that, the, that his readers, those who would pick up this gospel, would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing they may have life in his name. In other words, John is writing to reveal that there's something special about this Jesus. There was something unique. There was something divine about this Jesus. There was hope and salvation in no one else but this Jesus. And so John chooses here at the very beginning to first identify him as the Word. But by doing this, John's actually contextualizing very well. Because John is tapping into the thought of the day. 
You see, the word logos or the word, it would have been familiar to people of different philosophies and backgrounds and ideologies. The, the word logos would have been familiar to the people. You see, even in Greek philosophy, it was a way of speaking about divine reasons. There was this philosopher named, named Philo. You might have heard of him. He lived between 20 B.C. and 50 A.D., so actually during the lifetime, potentially, of John for, for a short time. And, and, and Philo wrote many books, and what he did is he combined Hebrew and Greek theology and philosophy, and he used the word logos in many different ways to refer to diverse aspects of God and his activity in the world. Right? So even philosophers would use this word logos to try to communicate divine activity or the supernatural or something happening in this world. But even more, you can go back in the Old Testament use of what we translate as logos was used specifically to refer to the dynamic and active communication of God's purpose and plan to his people in light of his creative ability. So even in the Old Testament, right, there's a difference between when God, God proclaims something. That's a different word. But when the word logos is used, it's actually, it's God's dynamic, his active communication as he reveals his plan and his purpose and his activity in, crea- in creation. So for both the Jew and the Greek, for the Pharisee and the philosopher, the word logos referred to the, the, the divine special activity in relation to creation. So when they heard the word logos, they immediately thought, okay, he's talking about God or the divine or whatever's out there doing something here in this created world. And John says, oh, yeah, I can work with that. You, you want to see God's divine revelation. You want, you want to, to know true wisdom. You want to see God's unique and dynamic plan and purpose for mankind. Well, here it is. His name's Jesus. And this Jesus exists, and he has always existed. But let's go back to verses 1 and 2 and see what John actually says about the word who exists and who has existed. Again, this is, this is where we're going to get into a little bit of theology, so I'm going to, I want to encourage you to just try to soak this in, and I'll do my best at the end of this point to try to offer some application into what do we do with all of this. But, but we've got to get this because God saw fit to communicate it to us, amen? Mm, that was bad. First note, how John says that Jesus is from the beginning. He's from the beginning. Look at, look at John 1, 1, and then... And then John 1, 2, it says, in the beginning was the word. That's the beginning of John 1, 1. Now look at verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. It's almost as if John is reiterating to us Genesis 1, 1. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And this is intentional on John's part. John is forcing the readers to consider the fact that when Jesus showed up in flesh, it's not because he was created at that time. He has always been. In the beginning was the word. Even even in how it's written, in the beginning was. That word was there is actually a very important word in how it's written. It's, it's written in the Greek in an, as an imperfect verb, meaning that Jesus was active before the, before the event took place. 
What's the event, the beginning? And so John is communicating that Jesus was, he was active, he was moving, he was doing things even before there was the beginning. But then goes on, John goes on and he says this, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Now, now this is important because John's drawing a distinction here. He's distinguishing God the Son from God the Father. Yes, both are God, but they are distinct in their personhood. And this is actually a precursor to, to, to the, the reality of the Trinity that John will flesh out in the remainder of his gospel. So if we were studying the book of John in its entirety, you would see how, how, how this introduction is setting the stage for John and what he's going to do in expounding the beautiful reality of the Trinity. So here's the Trinity in a nutshell. We believe in one God who exists in three persons simultaneously. One God who exists in three persons simultaneously. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. One God, three persons, distinct persons, yet one God. I'm just going to throw this out there. It is okay if you don't fully understand that. It is a mystery. We do our best to comprehend it, but we are not God, and it is okay that we don't understand it. But John, John picks up on this Trinitarian idea when he says that the, the word or Jesus was with God. Now, that word with there is also a very interesting word in the Greek. Pros, that's the word. It can be translated as with, or it could also be translated as toward, like facing toward something. So, so this verse could have read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was toward God. And as one commentator notes, the significance of that is it's implying a face-to-face -face relationship. Or another commentator says it like this, it could mean that the word was faced towards God in an intimate relationship with God the Father. Jesus himself tries to explain this in John 4, 34, where he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was with God in the beginning. But just, just to remove any confusion, or perhaps we could say to add a little confusion to it because the Trinity is such a mystery, look at the end of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So simultaneously you have Jesus being with God and you have Jesus being God. So if there was a thought of God being separate from Jesus in terms of divinity, John makes sure to remove all doubt right here. Not only was the Word with God, but the Word was God. Not only was Jesus with God before the beginning, but Jesus is God from the beginning. Distinct from God the Father and simultaneously one. Is your head hurting yet? Good. Let me read you this paragraph. It's written by a man named Colin Cruz, and, and I think it's really helpful in understanding what's going on here and what John is trying to say. So he says this, this, the third statement, and the word was God on first reading might suggest a Unitarian understanding of God, the word being simply equated with God. But the original language, kai theos in ologos, will not allow such an interpretation. 
to read the text in that way also overlooks the stress on the relationship existing between the Word and God, being with God or close to God's heart. Relationship implies different person and moves us away from Unitarianism, meaning one God, one person, and towards Trinitarianism, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. And as the fourth gospel unfolds, it becomes clear that this is what is intended. Jesus, the Word incarnate, claims to be one with God, but that involves being in relationship with God. So when the prologue says the Word was God, it is not saying that the Word and God constitute an undifferentiated unity, but rather it is saying, in words most aptly coined by Maloney, what God was the word also was. I read all of that to simply say this. Jesus is God. He was with God in the beginning and he is God. The second member of the Trinity in relationship with God the Father while simultaneously and inseparably being the Son of God. The word existed. Now, I told you I'd do this, so, so the question we have to answer is like, all right, that's great, that's good theology, people have written books about that, but what do we, what do, we do with this, right? Like, like, like how does the, 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 the reality of the Trinity, the fact that Jesus was from the beginning, that, that he was with God and that he is God, how, how does that shape how we live, how we worship, how, how we move about in this world? You could say it like this, why in the world does John even highlight this about Jesus? Well, I believe that first and foremost, like the story at the beginning, if we fail to see who Jesus truly is, we will fail to give him the glory and the honor and the surrender that he rightly deserves. If all of this is true, if Jesus is the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, if he is with God and is God, then it means that he has the right to make some of the demands that he makes on your life. He has the right to call you to die to yourself and follow him daily. He has the right to tell you to take up your cross and follow him. He is justified in claiming to be Lord and he is worthy. If Jesus is nothing more than just a human teacher who modeled for us a good way to live, then we owe him nothing. But if this Jesus is indeed the word made flesh, he has the right to not only be our savior, but to be our Lord as well. Let me just say it like this. Too many people right now are trying to argue that Jesus is something other than what he is. Too many people are trying to argue that Jesus was just a moral teacher. Too many people see Jesus as merely an example of how to care for the lowly and the poor and the marginalized. Too many see, people see Jesus as just another man and not as God. But what John wants us to understand is that there is no one like this Jesus. I really like how C.S. Lewis writes it in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen to what he writes about Jesus. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's Jesus. I'm, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come, I like this, with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. Jesus either is who he says he is, or he is a fool, or at worst, as, Spurgeon, or as, as Lewis says, a demon of hell. You see, Peter understood this when he testified in Acts 2.36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior. You see, we have to come to terms with the fact that if this is who Jesus is, He is Lord. He is not only the Lord of this universe, but He is the Lord of your life and my life. We can't forget that that baby born in a manger was not merely a get-out-of-hell-free card. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as the Lord of your life. And we've, we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. That is a struggle that you and I can find ourselves in. We love what Jesus did for us on the cross. We love the salvation that he provided and the fact that we can be with God, that we get to dwell with him for all eternity in heaven. We're good with that. But then the moment that Jesus starts making demands of our lives, we have a problem with that. But what Scripture communicates, what John wants us to see, what Peter was testifying in Acts 2, is that there is no separation. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not have Him as Lord of your life. In other words, you can't get saved and keep living however you want to live. It doesn't work that way. If the Word exists, if He has existed, if He is with God and is God, then He is Lord. But here's the second reality that John communicates about the Word. Not only that the Word existed, but that the Word was active. That the Word was active. Look at verse 3. It says that all things were created through Him and apart from Him. Not one thing was created that has been created. The Word was active. So, so what John's getting at here is that not only has Jesus existed eternally, but he's been active throughout the history of the world. Did you know that? Did you know that even in the Old Testament that Jesus is active? He's seen, he's visible, he's moving throughout his creation. We'll come to that in a second. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But notice what John attributes to Jesus. He attributes to Jesus the creation of the world. He says that Jesus is the one who created, and this actually isn't a new concept in the Bible. We read in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, that he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Now you may be thinking, I thought God the Father created the world. Did Jesus create the world, or did God the Father create the world? And my answer to that would be yes. Yes. That's right. See, let's go back to Genesis 1. This is incredible when you start to see it. So, so, so Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Here it is. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters separating water from water. Verse 9, then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth produce vegetation. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night. So you get the idea. How did God create? By speaking. And who is Jesus? the Word. So did God the Father create? Yes. Did God the Son create? Yes. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things, listen, and made the universe through him. You see, Jesus was active prior to coming as a baby in Bethlehem. But here's the amazing thing. You don't just have to look at creation to see the word active. Do you realize that we see Jesus present in the Old Testament? You'll watch this. This is cool. The I am in whom Abraham rejoiced was Jesus. John 8 Verses 56 and 58, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. This is Jesus speaking. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet. And and, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Which meant that when the burning bush confirmed to Moses that his name was I am, it was Jesus. But even more, Moses was motivated by Jesus because the author of Hebrews tells us in verse, or chapter 11, verse 26, speaking of Moses, for he, that's Moses, considered the reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt since he was looking forward to that reward. Moses was motivated by Jesus. The Redeemer who delivered the people of God from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land was the Son. It was Jesus. Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed the ones who did not believe. When the people of God were without water in the wilderness, the rock from which the water flowed was Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, speaking of when the people of God were in the wilderness, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
When Isaiah had the vision in Isaiah chapter 6 of the king on his throne, that king was Jesus. John 12, 37 through 41, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in Jesus. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because also Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Here it is. Isaiah said these things. Because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory, and spoke about him. When the star shined and the angels sang and a baby was born in Bethlehem, it was the same Jesus at work in the world again. Yes, Jesus existed with God from before time, but make no mistake, Jesus was not sitting on the bench of heaven, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for his number to be called. He has always been at work in this world. And this truth that Jesus was and is active should stir up within us two things. First, it should stir up our worship. That this God would come to save us. That this eternal, active God wrapped himself in frail flesh and showed up as a baby. The one who Isaiah saw on the throne. The one who showed up as a cloud by day and a fire by night. The one who delivered Egypt from slavery to freedom in the promised land. The one who motivated Moses. The one who is the great I am would wrap himself in flesh. And show up as a baby. The lyrics to the song Joy Has Dawn captures this picture beautifully. Sounds of wonder fill the sky with the songs of angels as the mighty prince of life shelters in a stable. Hands that set each star in place and shaped the earth in darkness cling now to a mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. Why? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But not only should the fact that Jesus was and is active stir up worship, it should also stir up hope. Because what John reminds us of is that even when we don't fully recognize Jesus, even when we can't see him, he is always working. Can I tell you something, believer? That's good news to us. That is good news to us. That when we can't see him, he's working. Some of us had no idea that that was Jesus in the Old Testament, but there he was. Can I tell you something? You have gone through some things in your life and you had no idea that it was Jesus, but there he was. He has been active in your life. He has called, if you are in him, then he has called you and saved you before the foundation of the world. There has never not been a moment when Jesus has not been active in your life. He is always doing something. And that is good news because problems come and trials come and hardships come. And what, what the baby born in a manger testifies to us is that Jesus has always been active in this world. See, let me press a little bit harder. For us, I think often our problem comes 
and that we want to be him. We want the answers. We want the knowledge. We want the purpose. We want the closure. We want to know all that is happening. And we struggle to trust that Jesus is working. Sometimes those things just aren't ours to have. But here again is the good news. The Bible tells us, not in specifics, but broadly what the purpose of all of Jesus' activity is in your life. All things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so if you are in Christ, it means you love God. And you are called according to his purpose. And you might not know why he's doing what he's doing. You might not know what he's doing in a moment. But you know what the result will be. It will be for your good. It will be for your good. And that should give us hope. The fact that this word is active. Always has been. And always will be. Here's the final truth that John John wants to communicate to us about the word, not only that the word has existed, not only that the word is active, but that the word is salvation. The word is salvation. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And what John is doing here is very interesting. Again, he's alluding back to creation. Because you remember Genesis 1, 3, it says, then God said, let there be light, and there was light in creation. In Genesis, darkness gives way to light. The power of God, which spoke everything into existence, was working to bring light out of the darkness. But in verse 4, we realize that while alluding to creation, John is actually speaking about Jesus in him was life. And that life was the light of men. You see, Jesus is the source of all life. And in Genesis, it's physical life. But now John shifts our attention and says, not only is Jesus the word through which God created the world, but this Jesus is also the one who gives spiritual life. It's not just physical. It's also spiritual. Jesus himself is the light which saves mankind from darkness. Jesus himself says it like this in John chapter 12, verse 35. It says, Jesus answered, the light will, will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. The life of Jesus is the light of men. And what John is doing is he's foreshadowing what is to come in the life of Jesus. He's foreshadowing the reason Jesus came and the ultimate triumph which would be accomplished through his incarnation. Brothers and sisters, what we have to remember is that while we celebrate a baby born in Bethlehem, that baby came for a purpose. That baby would grow in wisdom and in stature 
that baby would faithfully keep the law like no one else could. And that baby would one day go to the poor and the marginalized. That baby would one day heal diseases and cast out demons. That baby would reflect to us the love, the mercy, and the glory of God. And ultimately, that baby would one day walk up a hill called Calvary with wood strapped to his beaten body. He would be hung high and he would be stretched wide and he would hang between heaven and earth paying for the sins of guilty people like you and me. He would feel the sting of sin. He would feel the pain of death. He would die on a cross and be buried in a tomb. But three days later, he would rise from the dead and then after providing a way of salvation, he would ascend back to the Father where he continues to rule and reign forevermore. In him was life. In him is life. And Jesus is not just the source of our physical existence. He is the source of our spiritual salvation, of life and life abundantly. And what John wants us to see and believe is the same thing that Peter proclaimed in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here's the thing, church. During this season, we're pulled in so many different directions. If you're like me, you're planning trips, you're planning family get-togethers, you're buying presents, you're decorating houses, you're planning meals and gathering together. And while none of those things are bad in and of themselves, what we cannot forget is the thing that matters most. We cannot forget to worship because salvation has come. Your holidays might not go as smoothly as you planned. Do they ever? But salvation has come. You might have to sit for your Christmas dinner around that crazy uncle that nobody wants to sit next to and you got placed next to him. Salvation has come. Nobody might send you one Christmas card. But salvation has come. What Abraham longed to see, the deliverance Moses believed would come for the people, the Messiah the prophets declared, all the longing of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in a little baby born in the city of David. Our hope was born over 2,000 years ago in a town called Bethlehem, born to a virgin, the word made flesh. Who is this word? Well, this is the word who has always existed. This is the word who has always been active. And this is the word through whom our salvation comes. Let's pray.